Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. On this episode, we discuss Avengers Infinity War. Released in 2018, directed by Anthony and Joe Russo, on a budget of $321 million, this film grossed $2.04 billion worldwide. $320 million budget, that's crazy. Insane. Wow. $2.04 billion. This is the, the fourth movie to gross $2 billion worldwide after Avatar in 2009, Titanic 1997, and Star Wars Episode Seven, The Force Awakens in 2015. And at the time, it was the fastest to one billion. It made a billion dollars in 11 days. Yeah, I think it was the fastest. I think it was the fastest opening weekend, and I don't think it's been broken since. But don't quote me on that. I remember when it came out, there was this fever pitch for it. Everyone was clamoring to see it. I I was dying to see it, and I didn't go until like I think it was three weeks into the release because it was sold out everywhere, and it was just like hard to get any tickets, even though we would live in LA. Yeah, and I actually went with like a big group of friends, so it was like a really fun experience for for when I went at the time. There was I like maybe, maybe... <laughs> wow. I went with like 11 people, this poor guy over here. <laughs> and it was just like a really fun experience. And like, we were so giddy getting there. And when we watched it, we were all blown away. And we were all so sad and devastated at the end of the film. And we were, you know, talking about it for hours after. That's That you can say is the ultimate strength of what Marvel had has done over the past decade and a half, where you have all these superheroes that no one outside of superhero fans and comic fandom knew. I had never heard of Thanos. I had never, I had barely heard of Iron Man. Captain America, yeah. yeah. Like I was aware, Thor. I was kind of aware of- Hulk. I was, I Hulk, I knew Hulk. Otherwise, no one. And all these characters, I know that comic book readers and, and comic book fans, they've known of these characters forever and they've always supported them. But it's amazing that Marvel managed to take these characters the mainstream audiences had never heard of and they brought them to film screens in such a big way and the culmination of this two-part ending this is this being the penultimate episode millions and millions of people became gigantic fans of these characters and it's really incredible what Mar marvel pulled off the best way to support raiders of the lost podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash raiders of the lost podcast you'll get perks like personalized messages personalized videos podcast schedules top tier patrons also get a monthly shout out on the podcast which we will be doing in this episode and all patrons are also privy to our daily posts and monthly giveaway contests head on over to our new website raiders of the lost podcast.com to check out all of our sources of content our custom movie posters our merch and you can become a patron there as well yeah i think my favorite part of this entire film and you can argue for later on end game is like you said, we had these established characters who a lot of them had two or three movies. Just we find we know who they are. We've grown to like them in their franchises. But now Marvel and the writers and, and filmmakers, they take the different universes and different franchises of this Marvel Cinematic Universe and throws them together into different like groups. And we have like Tony Stark and Doctor Strange in the beginning of the movie with Hulk and Bruce Banner. And then we have the Guardians with Thor and these di these different connections. It just works so well, even Bucky's in Wakanda. So I think it's it's such an interesting take and it mixes everything up. And I think it's what keeps it fresh, even though this is the what the it was the 17th or no, like the 19th Marvel movie, I think. The only thing you could compare to is the television series with like this being the final season of the series, you know what I mean? It's like the season finale of like Breaking Bad or- But that's not even yeah. close to as like the characters. season finale of like Game of Thrones. It, you can compare it to Game of Thrones during the final season. Okay, so, All yeah. these amazing characters that you love that had never connected before. Tyrion connected with a few of them, Jamie with a few of them, but otherwise not really. And they all had their own plots and their own journeys. And then in the eighth season, they're starting to connect. And then there's those, 
those moments where everyone, all of the major players are together in one scene, which is just mind blowing. And this is what this whole movie is like. Like you said, you have these big personalities like Tony and Strange butting heads and it's so fun to see how they play off each other and then i think even better is thor and star lord and how they play off each other so funny and thor plus the guardians is just comedic gold which is obviously why they're going to be in thor love and thunder and so uh, being able to bring these beloved characters who had never met or intersected before into one moment by the end of endgame is just amazing yeah and they did it in a really clever way that it makes a lot of sense how all these these connections happen with Thor and the Asgardian ship being destroyed and then the Guardians come and find the distress beacon so that's how they get connected and then Tony insinuates that Steve Rogers is the only person that can find Vision and Wanda and that's how that team little team up happens. But and, before that Hulk is thrown into Strange's yeah, temple yeah. which then brings Tony into it so it's like you're right everything unfolds really naturally and it seems believable that all these occurrences and situations putting the characters together and one of the, another major con, I mean, pro to this film is obviously the villain Thanos, and easily, probably the best part of the movie, probably the best superhero comic villain we've seen in cinema before, I think. And better than the Joker, I think so. Oh wow! It's, in terms of the stakes, I mean, I'm not saying that the Joker in the Dark Knight um, and Heath Ledger's performance isn't the best ever of a villain, but I think just in terms of the villain of the film, Thanos is incredible. He's incredibly fleshed out. And he's arguably the lead character of the movie. I think he has 10 more minutes than anyone else at screen time-wise. I think Thanos is like 29 minutes of screen time, then Gamora's second with like 19 minutes. So he's in most of the movie. I would say the movie, for the most part, is told through his perspective. So yeah, definitely. For sure. And his character just changes so much from when we first saw him in Avengers in the, at the end of the movie. And he's just like this grinning, evil, menacing villain, he seems like. With his old weird face. Yeah, and then now he's this tortured soul in a way. And Josh Brolin's performance is incredible. The CGI is it's phenomenal. It's almost like you're not watching CGI. And I think it's the best villain Marvel's definitely put on screen. He has clear motivations. Thanos... He has this belief that he's completely justified and destined for this task of eliminating half the life in the universe because his philosophy is from the trauma of his past on Titan, his planet that was destroyed from being overpopulated in a way. He he thinks that by creating half, destroying half the life around the universe, all planets will flourish. He believes in balance. That's his that's his ideology. And there's that great uh, use of the metaphor of the knife with little Gamora. Uh, and he says, too much to one side and it tilts over. Too much to the other side, it tilts over. But if it's perfectly balanced, then it stays still um, as it should be. And and you, you can understand his thinking. And you can understand how he, he believes in justice and fairness. Like when he wants to um, genocide a planet, he chooses not by class or race or anything. He just, rich and poor alike, he'll... And everyone, half of them should die. So it's not like he he chooses specific people. Um, he he believes in fairness, but the problem with this ideology is he has good intentions for what he wants to do, and that is preserving life in the universe. But ultimately, uh, the the main problem with that is it's not his choice to make, and it shouldn't be his choice to make. He's not a god. He acts like he's a god, and he thinks of himself as a god, but he has no right to choose who lives and dies. But he thinks he does, and that's his hubris, I think. Yeah, his, his over-arrogance is his major flaw. He believes himself unstoppable. He views himself as a god, even though Loki plays with him at the beginning of the film saying, you'll never be a god. He eventually, in a way, becomes a god once he has 
all the infinity stones he can do anything he can create life he can change reality time so he technically becomes a god um he, he thinks that the universe will be grateful for what he wants to do and what his mission is and what his again destiny is and it's not until end game that re he eventually realizes well his past version of himself realizes that once he completes his task it was he overestimated the emotional impact or underestimated the emotional impact of the the act of killing half the universe and wiping it out and how all living creatures who survived that were just imprinted with they, they couldn't emotionally move on or accept what happened. So he they, thought they would thrive. So they couldn't thrive yeah. because of that. So he didn't he didn't calculate that into what could happen. And that eventually motivates him to want to wipe out all life in the universe at, at Endgame. But it, I think that Josh Brolin brought a great amount of empathy and, and vulnerability to the character, especially throwing in the plot with Gamora, because in the comics, he, he created Gamora um, in a lab. But in this film, he saved her. Um, from her planet when he was carrying out a genocide of killing half the uh, creatures on that planet and took her in as his adopted daughter. And so uh, he helped raise her in a, in a major way. And it shows that connection that uh, it's probably, it's the only emotional connection he has to anybody in the entire universe. I know in the comics, doesn't he, doesn't he get the stones to, for Hela? He, he has actually in the comics, it's a more nihilistic approach in terms of, or nihilistic, sorry for the pronunciation, approach to, he does wipe out half the universe with the gauntlet and the stones, but his his approach in destruction for life is to satisfy death who he's, who he's in love with. So, yeah, 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 yeah. And death is personified as a woman in yeah. the comics, yeah. So he's, he's doing it out of love. Yeah. And the desire to show up, um, to gain death's affection. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas this time, he's motivated based upon his ideology, which you can definitely get behind. Because how do you portray a, 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 a version of death that someone can be in love with? It gets, it, that would be very difficult to do in the film. So I think the Russo brothers were smart with, let's have him motivated by his ideology instead. Yeah, and the flashbacks and exposition give this brilliant explanation for the source of Thanos' motivations. Um, you know, he's talking about on when he was on Titan, when he's talking to Doc, Dr. Strange, he says, when we faced extinction, I offered a solution. He's like genocide and they call they called me a madman. And I think the other flashback where he saves Gamora's planet, basically, even though he d kills half the planet, he saves it because he when him and Gamora arguing next to the throne that he always wanted her to sit in someday. He says that the, ba the, the the children of that planet know nothing but full bellies and clear skies. And so I think because he saved Gamora's planet and probably other planets had the same effect, that he that justifies in his mind that it's okay to do throughout the entire universe and it means he has to do it. We interrupt this podcast to bring you some breaking news. This is an important PSA brought to you by Manscaped.com. This is the news you've all been waiting for. The Manscaped engineering team has confirmed that they have successfully created the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, which is now available for purchase in the USA and Canada. And I got to say, this new trimmer, they just sent it to us. Somehow it's better than the 3.0. It's incredible. We're some of the first people in the world to get our hands on it. And I'm telling you, best clippers I've ever used. And I was saying that about 3.0. This, this is even better. Join the over 2 million men worldwide who have put their trust in Manscaped for their grooming needs. 
This is an exclusive offer only for our listeners. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping worldwide. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Get their colognes, deodorizers. We have everything. Their boxer briefs, the t-shirts. Manscaped is awesome. Check out their new 4.0 trimmer. And everyone who's against him, they're of the opinion that he has no right to this to this power. Uh, because he, he, it's not like he was given this power. He stole this power. He stole the rings. He took the rings. So it's an unnatural thing that he's done by taking control of this much power, the uh, power that no being should ever have for this exact reason. And what Anthony's obviously referring to is the Infinity Stones, and there are six of them. There's the Space Stone, which grants the user the ability to travel between places instantly, um, instantaneously. We saw that in Captain America, the first Avenger. That's what Red Skull wanted. Uh, Avengers, that's what the, the Infinity Stone that's inside the Tesseract. Then we have the Reality Stone, which changes matter into dark matter, grants the user the ability to change reality. Um, that's the Ether that's in Thor 2. The Power Stone, which was in Guardians of the Galaxy, um, it grants the user unnaturally powerful strength. It's in the Orb. The Soul Stone, which is revealed in Infinity War, it grants the user the, the ability to control a person's soul. The Time Stone, Grants the user the ability to control time that's inside the eye of Agamotto, which is around uh, Doctor Strange's neck in Infinity War. I guarantee that's Christopher Nolan's favorite stone. (laughs) The time stone. (laughs) And then the mind stone, which grants the user the ability to control minds and also intelligence. And that's in Loki's scepter. It's what Tony uses to make Ultron. And so the stones throughout all these franchises that we've been talking about, these Infinity Stones all crop up in different places, different areas. And it's not until the end of this movie where they're all finally together at the same time. And we even learn more about the Mind Stone in WandaVision where the, the Mind Stone was used to help create Wanda's powers when she was experimented on. And the only stone that didn't show up, like you said, was the Soul Stone, which we first saw in Infinity War in this film because the filmmakers wanted to engage the stone by... Uh, sacrificing the one thing you love more than anything else. And so it became an emotional journey and an emotional sacrifice to reveal that stone, um, that the challenge of it. And so they saved it for this movie wisely, I think. Yeah, I think they wanted to... It was also fun for people to guess where it was. Like some people thought it was on Titan where Thanos is from or they thought it, it was some other planet or who, who knew. So I think it was fun for fans to try to guess where it was. And then it was smart to have... Gamora be the only character who secretly knew where it was and how, to, and not how to obtain it, but knew it, of its existence and where to find it. And it was smart for that's the only way that Thanos, no other being, could have got all six without her. And it's hard to believe how normal things are in the these latter films because, like, if you think about just Avengers, the first Avengers, like, there's the alien invasion, but like, the scope is still tiny. In terms of like the galaxy, and now in Endgame and Infinity War, the scope is just the entire universe, and we have these uh, intergalactic beings, and it's become so normal now. And so, the the size of the MCU just has been compounding and compounding, and it's just massive now. And it's it's incredible how big the scale of these two films is. Yeah, and just quick production value on this film. It's obviously sensational, but I love the cinematography in this movie. It was done by Trent um, Opalock and. It's tons of handheld shots, makes it seem realistic, and 
lots of long takes too, which we don't really seldom, which we seldom see in Marvel movies because we talk about how Marvel movies, you know, they have their their quota of shots that they had. It's it's pre-directed in a way before they get to set. So I think it was. I think they took artistic liberties with this film. And um, Trent is a great cinematographer, and he's actually the one who does. Uh, Neil Blomkamp's film, so he did like District Nine and Chappie and those movies. So I think that he he brings a phenomenal aesthetic to this film. They also shot with digital IMAX cameras, so it's probably like the highest quality digital camera that you can film with. I wonder what kind of freaking memory card they use for that. <laughs> <laughs> the sensor on that thing must be massive. It's incredible, but that's why it looks so good. Batteries burn out in three minutes. <laughs> But this movie, it gave so much depth to the MCU. It's a film about superheroes, but it's also a film about emotional relationships and family. And that's what we're on through this movie, where all these relationships that are kind of butting heads or, or growing or failing. We have characters like Hulk versus Bruce Banner trying to deal with their relationship and Doctor Strange and Tony. We have Wanda and Vision in their relationship. We have Steve Rogers and Tony in their relationship. Gamora, Peter, Gamora, and Thanos Bucky and Wakanda, Thor with the Guardians. We have the Rocket Groot Thor storyline. And so that's what I love about this movie is we have so many different story arcs and timelines of these emotional situations of these characters who are trying to find a way to save the universe, but they're not working together, which is their biggest weakness. They're all kind of doing their own separate thing on their own separate journeys. And that's that's what's created so much tension between Tony and Steve Rogers specifically because Steve wasn't there at the beginning of this film to help Tony because of Basically, Steve quit being Captain America, you could say, at the end of Civil War. He didn't want to do it anymore. And that's why he's he's nowhere to be found in New York at that opening invasion. And that's what causes Tony and him to fight later on because Steve wasn't there later on in Endgame. And that's why Steve's clothes are so dark and him, him Sam, and Natasha, their clothes are all battered and war-torn. And Steve's even r- ripped off the emblems off his uniform, so he, he ripped the star off in I know it looked like from trailers that he was wearing his his famous black costume from the comics, but he's actually just still wearing the same costume from Civil War, but it's just run down and it's all like battered and it's got like stains from like explosions and like charcoal stains all over it. So that's why it looks dark, but it's actually the same exact costume he's always had. They're just operating under the radar and in the shadows. And it seems like Sam, Steve, and Natasha have become like a great unit working together. The way they they take out those two um, bad guys pretty pretty easily um, when they save Vision and, and Wanda. They seem to be they've probably been at it for a few years now. But my favorite reveal of a character, not so much the reveal, but um, Doctor Doctor Strange in this film, he seems like since his solo movie. He's been training for years now, up to this point in the MCU timeline. So he's been the the Sorcerer Supreme for a while now, and so he's now attained the the abilities that um, you could call him easily one of, if not at this time, the strongest Avengers. Be um, and it so it was great to see him. He acts. He's very much like at this point in the MCU, he's like a leader. And he kind of talk. He even talks down to like Tony Stark. You know what I mean? Because it feel it feels like he's like the dad of the group almost in a way. Absolutely. Yeah. He, he seems like he's bearing the responsibility and leadership role. And he he's very important in both of these films because obviously we have the situation where he uses the time stone to check out all the different simulations of 
what's going to play out when they fight Thanos. And out of 14, there's only one that they win. 14 million. Yeah, 14. I'm sorry. 14, 14 million. <laughs> you, only, of, you only looked at 14? Come on, Strange. One in 14. That's not bad odds, actually. <laughs> yeah, I'll take one in 14. That's but it's one in 14 million that they have to win. So he's he's a really important figure in both this and Endgame and the saving of the world because... I think in the back of your mind when you're watching him give Thanos the time stone, you're like, there's a reason why he's doing it. Obviously, he's doing it to, sac- to to save Tony Stark's life, among other things. But, you know, later on Endgame, we'll, for a second, like, Tony's not going to be able to solve the solve time travel if he's not alive. So that's obviously one of the reasons why Strange willingly gives up the time stone. But he's a super important character in this film. And it actually makes me a lot more excited to see the next Doctor Strange movie. Especially if rumors are true that Wanda will be in it. So that would be a lot of fun. And so obviously you can conclude that that one in 14 million scenario is the scenario in which they allow Thanos to get the stones. And that's why Strange gives it to him because in no other reality would they have given him the the stone willingly like he did. Yeah, actually, I agree. I think like out of all those 14 million, like 13.99999, all those, they tried to do it without giving him the stone. Maybe, And they all failed. And what's really cool about Thanos is that moment right there how he Strange makes the deal to give Thanos the stone to spare Tony. And Thanos, um, he he m- multiple times in this film, he's a man of his word because he, he spares Tony in this situation. And he also spares Thor in exchange for when Loki agrees to give up the space stone initially. Um, and he spares Nebula in exchange for Gamora revealing the information um, about the Soul Stone. And so uh, even though he, you can call him a murderous psychopath, he does have principle in some regard, and he does, um, he is a man of his word. Before we continue our conversation, I got to tell you all about MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Use our special coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. MoviePosters.com has framing, backlighting, any kind of size poster, pretty much any movie imaginable, they got it. They've also teamed up with us to sell our custom-made Raiders of the Lost podcast movie posters. James and I did a spoof of Lethal Weapon. We did a spoof of The Shining and also our own custom Raiders poster. Head on over to RaidersoftheLostPodcast.com to check those posters out along with the rest of our merch. And don't forget to head on over to MoviePosters.com and use our special coupon code Raiders15. Again, Raiders15 at MoviePosters.com to get 15% off your order today. Yeah, you can even say that that's why he doesn't kill Peter Quill. He could easily just rip his head off right there if he wants to after Peter Quill uh, attempts to shoot Gamora. But he just let, he he is like kind of toying with it and enjoying himself watching Peter Quill to see how far he'll go. But if he's not completely a murderous psychopath, like you said, he has principle. Otherwise, he would just kill everybody. And that's what I love about this movie is Thanos wins. He gets all the stones. He can do anything he wants. And he wins. The Avengers lose. They fail. And that's one of the biggest themes of this movie is failure. All these... All these amazing, mighty Avengers, these humans turned into gods. Obviously, Thor is the only god, pretty much. They fall. Their fall is greater than their rise that we've been watching over the last decade and a half, two decades. You know, Iron Man fails to th- stop Thanos. Star-Lord wakes Thanos up, which causes them him to, even though he comes up with that plan, he sabotages it. Gamora fails to prevent Thanos from getting the Soul Stone. Thor fails to kill Thanos by arrogantly not going for the head because he wants to get that line in. 
Captain America fails. He can't stop Thanos. T'Challa fails. He fails Wakanda. Wanda destroys the Mind Stone, but fails to stop Thanos afterwards. Spider-Man falls. Bruce, Bruce Spider-Man fails. Uh, Bruce fails because he can't bring the Hulk out ever. Everyone fails in this movie, which is what makes it so emotional and makes us so eager for the sequel. So I think that the characters failing is one of two things that Marvel never really did in their movies. And the second one is death. Uh, it seems Marvel always always pretty much avoided death in their in their films um, in terms of lead characters and main characters and um, there's it's even a running joke that like characters would never die and that's what made the difference between like a DC film and a Marvel film but in this film people die and it happens right off the bat and it's a great opening sequence when Thanos' ship takes over um, the Asgardian ship and uh, we see that emotional scene where he literally chokes the life out of Loki and it's Loki has faked his death multiple times, but uh, this time it, it it felt different. It 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 was definitely real. You know, what I mean, Loki really died for real, for real this time. And I think the Russo brothers are showing the audience that, like, you know what, we're done with the the safe, fluffy Marvel storylines we always go with. We want to show real consequences. And so here's w one of the most beloved characters, and he's gonna die within two minutes of the movie. And I think that really shocked audiences and really set the stage for what the movie ended up becoming. Yeah, that also ties into my made, my number one con with Infinity War. And you could say the final two Avengers film in general because it's really one movie. Although some characters really do die, like you said, Loki in the beginning and then Idris Elba's character and then a few other characters actually really die. Um, obviously, Marvel isn't going to kill off half of their superheroes. We all, even though we know that the he's going to snap his fingers at the end of this film because there's going to be a sequel when we went into seeing this. I mean, Guardians 3 was announced before this movie was even released, so we knew that was going to happen. We knew there's there Spider-Man no, Homecoming was going to be after Endgame. After Black Panther made a billion dollars, so it's not like they're going to kill T'Challa off just like that. So I think, so for me personally, the stakes of the movie weren't as high because I knew pretty much everybody was coming back for the second film, even though T'Challa disappears, Peter Quill disappears, Spider-Man disappears, all these major players disappear. The franchises aren't over. It's Disney. It's Marvel. They're going to make more movies with all these characters. We know they're coming back. Obviously, the early deaths are the emotional part because we know they're not coming back, even though Loki, they figured out how to make a new spin-off TV show with him. But, you know, and obviously Tony at the end of Endgame, spoiler alert, when he dies. But... That's why I think the stakes are kind of removed from this movie a little bit at the end, even though it's emotional to watch everyone die and fade away. And it's a really intense scene because they do it with no music and we just you hear the, the vanishing, wind. the wind and everything. So it's it's an intense scene to watch, but we know they're coming back. So that's that's just one con for me where it t the stakes aren't as high as, as it would be if they all actually really did die. I 100% I agree with you because when everyone died, I didn't get emotional, and I know people were like devastated by it. But I'm like, you know, they're all gonna be back in the second film. Yeah. So I, I def, I was just more like, oh, I'm curious to see how they get these people back because they're obviously gonna get them back because I think for, uh, especially for the reason that they just disappeared into dust. You know, what I mean, it's not like they were physically killed because I don't like how do you bring them back if they're like just stabbed through the heart like like Vision was. Although Vision will end up coming back thanks to to WandaVision. So. Uh, even like even though the characters who died before the blip, they are getting their own their own work and their own spin-off stuff. My only question is, how exactly is Loki 
the Loki TV series is gonna gonna factor into the timeline of his death. I don't think it's gonna re- relate to anything that they're doing with the future of the MCU because it's the Loki who escaped when they went back in time to get the Tesseract from from New York 2014. Yeah, but if he escaped back then, then how is he in uh, Infinity War? Is what I'm saying. Well, it's the paradox, the grandfather paradox. Yeah. So will he just have his own spin-off thing? Maybe his own spin-off stuff. It'll end with him returning to Asgard, where he'll it'll, it'll allow him to have the end, like his actual death, and maybe maybe it's a different dimension. But yeah, yeah it's the grandfather paradox. How could he do this if he went back yeah. in time? Did that? You know, we talked about that with Interstellar. So confusing. Yeah, <laughs> that's what makes it a paradox. But um, I I don't know. I I'm assuming they're just gonna have it. I, I my guess is it'll be a different dimension. That's yeah. my, my assumption. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're just, I think they're treating it like it, like actual comic books where like, you know, this this character has their own spinoffs and then there are the Avengers comics and then there's like the Captain America comics. So yeah. I think it would I, be like that. I yeah. don't see him like connecting with this group of Avengers in this MCU. I could be wrong though. I don't know. My favorite pairing or grouping of the characters that I had never met before, it might be Thor and Rocket and Groot. I love them together. <laughs> I, and I love when Thor... Is with the Guardians. It's because uh, when with Thor Ragnarok, Marvel gave Taika and Hemsworth the freedom to to project their natural humor into the movie. Because Hemsworth, if you've seen him on interviews and talk shows, very funny, very charming, and they never had that that strong characteristic uh, that he naturally has in the first two Thor movies. It's always subtle. There are a there. couple one liners, but. With Thor, Ragnarok, they really let him just like, you know what, be Hemsworth, right? And so they realized that I think Hemsworth with the Guardians crew is like peanut butter and jelly. It just works. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like lamb and tuna fish. <laughs> lamb, tuna fish. <laughs> and so just just Thor on that ship, it cracks me up. It's so funny. Yeah, every time. And then <laughs> Star-Lord's like super insecure about him. <laughs> That's a man. You're a dude. Quit feeling his muscles. <laughs> Quit massaging his muscles. But yeah, it, it's great when him and Rocket and Groot leave because we... Rabbit. Because <laughs> Rocket and Peter Quill, even though they've made up in the last Guardians movie, they still butt heads constantly. Yeah, they're wise guys. Yeah, and it seems like Rocket can't wait to get away. And he's so consumed with the idea of going to... Nita Valer, the the planet where all the most awesome, dangerous, monstrous weapons in the universe are made. So he seems like a perfect fit for that crew. And then Groot, as a teenager, pimply faced playing the video games, angsty, absolutely hysterical in this movie. I love the banter between who's the captain <laughs> between Rocket and Quill. <laughs> well, then that happens at the end of Endgame between yeah. Thor and Quill. <laughs> you're in charge. Oh yeah, you, you, you of you're course, you're in charge. <laughs> but it's a great dynamic because. Groot is so beneficial. It's a great dynamic because it plays into the theme of sacrifice in this movie where Rocket, Groot, and Thor, they travel to that planet to get the weapon, the The axe. going. Yeah. And uh, Thor almost sacrifices himself to get the star ignited again. And then Groot sacrifices part of his being to to create the axe itself as the handle because Thor's dying so he has to sacrifice part of himself to forge and, and complete the the construction of the axe as well but sacrifice and self-sacrifice is a huge theme in this movie and all of these characters deal with it at some point 
in this film has so many sacrifices. We have Thanos. He must sacrifice Gamora to get the Soul Stone. Tony potentially sacrifices his life with Pepper at the beginning of the film when he gets on that ship. And Peter potentially sacrifices his life when he gets on the ship as well. Star-Lord, he had tries to sacrifice Gamora. And you could say that the act of him actually pulling the trigger in a way for him emotionally means that he did sacrifice her and kill her in his own mind, even though only bubbles come out. Groot sacrifices part of his body for Thor's ex. T'Challa sacrifices the safety of Wakanda to try and stop Thanos. And then same thing with, similar to Peter, Wanda has to sacrifice Vision in a way. And so even though she destroys Vision by destroying the, the Mind Stone, even though Thanos reverses time and Vision comes back to life momentarily, same thing with Peter, emotionally, she still carried out the act of killing the person she loves. So there's a ton of self-sacrifice in this film. People also sacrifice limbs. It's a long-standing tradition for Marvel characters to lose arms. So Groot in this one, right? Yeah, Groot loses his arm. And then also um, Banner, when he's in the Hulkbuster, he sacrifices one of the arms to kill that demon monster. Thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and if you look throughout the MC movies, people are always losing arms. Um, and this is actually a reference to Luke Skywalker getting his arm chopped off by Darth Vader. Yeah, they've been doing it in a lot of movies. Yeah, But I love that connection that Wanda and Peter have where their their plot points are very tied, where they actually have to carry out this kind of pointless sacrifice for their loved one, which ends up not being a, a true sacrifice. But I can really imagine the emotional toll it takes on both of them. And like I said, even though they come, even though Peter Quill's bubbles come out and then Vision comes back to life, you can still imagine that they've gone through a lot just to carry out that act and get to the mental capacity to perform it. The, the filmmakers did such an amazing job with this ensemble. I mean, there's so many characters, but it is it was a little bit of a bummer to not see Hawkeye in this movie at all. Um, because, I mean, he's not... I mean, he's, what, the sixth sixth most important Avenger? So, I mean, he's not the biggest deal, but I think it, it, it was surprising that he wasn't in it at all, although he does have a major role in Endgame, uh, and he's fantastic in that movie. It was kind of like a bummer to see, where is Hawkeye during all of this? So otherwise, I mean, how how can you juggle all these characters together without, I mean, you, ha you only have so much screen time, and I still think they did an amazing job with what they had. I agree. Hawkeye's great, and it, it's kind of like how Nick Fury's not really in this movie at all. Oh, yeah, so you're the, right. Yeah, in credit scene. But we'll That's get, what's missing. Yeah. yeah, we'll get to that in a little bit. But let's have our intermission of Raiders of the Lost podcast, which is brought to you by our sponsor, Manscaped.com. Use our coupon, our coupon code Raiders of the Lost for 20% off and free shipping at checkout. Our intermission will begin with our movie quote competition, where I say movie quote, Anthony has to guess it, and vice versa. We'll do the same thing with... I guess a movie release year, a movie pop quiz question, and we'll even bring up a top hater of the week. Biggest hater. <laughs> All right, so I'll go first. This is a movie quote. Hit me. Guess the movie, if you can guess the character, bonus points. Happiness can be found in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. It's Dumbledore. What movie? Azkaban. Nice. Good. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That was good. <laughs> No hesitation. <laughs> I know my HP kid. Hell yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, we're definitely doing solo films for all of those because we are massive Harry Potter fans. Dude, the first two words you said, I was like, oh, I felt, I heard Dumbledore in my head <laughs> immediately. <laughs> all right, here's mine. It was not my intention to do this in front of you. For that, I'm sorry, but you can take my word for it. Your mother had it coming. When you grow up, if you still feel raw about it, I'll be waiting. Kill Bill. Yep. 
Yep. Who said it? Beatrix Kiddo. Hey, hey, you said it name right. Let's go. <laughs> James has this thing where he often says Beatrix Kiddo. No, I say Beatrix. Beatrix Kiddo. <laughs> Beatrix. Beatrix. It's just in my brain. It just comes out as Beatrix. It's like mom and her mild dyslexia. It just, yeah. just doesn't work sometimes. But I knew I would get good it. Job. In my head, I'm like, what is that movie? It's a good quote, right? Yeah, it's an excellent quote. Yeah. All right. Guess this movie release year. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. What year was it released? 1989. 86. Ah. Okay, here's mine. Jurassic Park. What year it came out? Yeah. No. <laughs> What's the fucking contest? <laughs> Jesus. It's it's like how you stall for it. It's like a way to stall to, to oh, buy yeah, yourself okay. time. Yeah. <laughs> Jurassic Park is definitely 1994. 93. Oh, it's the year before. Close. Very oh, close. God damn it. I'm like, it's the same year as Pulp Fiction? Yeah. Damn. All right. Movie pop quiz. Hit me. In Back to the Future, Uh-oh. what year does Marty McFly <laughs> travel back to in time? I can give you multiple choice if you want. I don't want multiple choice. <laughs> <laughs> 1958. Nope. What is it? 1955. Ah, I knew it was close, 50s. Close. I've only seen the movie like three times, so yeah. I haven't seen it in a while. That's why I was going to give you the multiple choice, but hey, you're 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 better. Thanks. It's not a compliment. <laughs> a lot of degenerates out there. No offense if you are. <laughs> Here's my quiz question. What film did Meryl Streep win her first Oscar for? She has three. What was her first one for? Kramer versus Kramer. Yep. Let's go. Good Let's job. go. Good job. Yeah. Great guess. Did I get all three? No, you didn't get the second one. Oh, yeah. I got dressed <laughs> Park. I was one year off. Two out of three. Not bad. Not bad. Beat you. Good job. Thanks, man. <laughs> oh, man. Jeez. Sorry, I'm excited. I beat you. You fucking idiot. <laughs> Way too Next, aggressive. Next, you're going to kick me off the show. <laughs> I, don't need I you. don't need you. I don't need you anymore. I got two. I can host it myself. I got two <laughs> questions right. Out of three. Still a D. 66%. <laughs> All right. Let's do our <laughs> biggest hater of the week. Let's go. It's actually going to be a recent one. Ooh. Were they drinking lots of haterade? Big time. right we actually i don't know if anyone saw but we actually got put into one of pewdiepie's most recent youtube videos if you don't know who pewdiepie is he's he's biggest youtuber on the plane he's got like 109 million subscribers and he actually made a video reacting to tiktok clips and we were in the video in the first minute and a half which is super cool to be in like a huge video like that it was awesome and so we posted a video saying that like hey go check out pewdiepie's reaction to our our tiktok clip and then some kid named Tristan wrote, CEOs of reading IMDb trivia pages, that's what I do. I judge and I know things, which he thinks is a cool movie quote. And then, uh, <laughs> and then I, just, I, I try to respond politely to people on TikTok. I don't even try to start fights or anything anymore. Anything anymore. So I wrote, we produce two 90-minute episodes of film analysis every week. Feel free to actually check out the podcast. This is just TikTok. And then he wrote, wow, that's like 18,720 hours a year, roughly two weeks of crap content. And the funny thing about that is he did his math wrong. So he had it right, but then he <laughs> multiplied by two unnecessarily. So he doesn't even know how to do math. So that kid's a POS. He's double stupid. Yeah. So we, what happens is a lot of like 99% of people are super positive, but there are these guys on you on TikTok and they throw these comments out, like saying that like, all we do is, is spew trivia Whereas, like, well, what do you think that website you read that fact is doing? It's like the same. We're just spreading cool knowledge about movies and 
like expressing like oh maybe you don't know this about a movie but so people get so salty about it for some reason like they get angry at us for it yeah but also it's just tiktok it's yeah. just like it's just we just can't clips we can't condense the analysis of a movie into tiktok clips yeah, we, it wouldn't a, make any we sense we can't turn this avengers episode into a hundred clips for tiktok yeah. so we just like here's like what would be interesting here's a quick fact that yeah. we'll do it's like mostly fun facts on our tiktok as well as mild film analysis but people get offended people man we get really yeah. upset over nothing but yeah. this person he's very insecure and he's very unhappy in his life so He's, I have nothing yeah. but pity for him, honestly. Yeah, I feel bad for him. He just wanted really to he wanted to step on top of someone and make himself feel large and tall. But he's also he's supposedly really... an actor and comedian and probably has and he has like three followers, so that's why he's so unhappy. You probably. know what I love? His bio said starving actor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> starving so clearly, for attention. Clearly no one wants to hear see you work, so <laughs> you're gonna be starving for a long time, buddy. It's now time to do our top tier Patreon shout out list. Thank you to everyone who's a top tier. $10 patron for the show. Michael Caranja, Caleb Fleming, Justin, Riley McDonald, Nicola Simeona, Nate Moore, Angel Mendez, Travis Ball, Caitlin Signorelli, Logan Schroeder, Harry Roscoe, Jorge Chavez, Dennis, Jacob Kostler, Ken J, Dennis, Caleb McFalls, Justin T. Frank, Max Rosk, Sal Guanera, Aaron McCardle, Christopher Tunnel, Grayson Younts, Tyler McDowell, Cole Carroll, Lauren, Colby Burke, Madison Yamarillo, Barrett Compton, Tanner Teagarden, Andy Walker, TJ Rollins, John Podskin, Nelson Nicholson, Caitlin, Nick Carlson, Timon Hayashi, Nicholas Ozaniak, Christian, Nick Sheridan, a.k.a. Sherry, Andrew Lukler, Sarai Rogers, Dominic Swain, Brandon Smith, Hunter Smith, and Ethan Storm. Thank you so much to all you top-tier patrons for supporting the show. All you $5 and $2 patrons, we still love you too. All right, let's get back into Avengers Infinity War. You just brought up that Hawkeye is not in Infinity War at all, which is a, which is a bummer. That's definitely a con to the film. I think another con in, in addition to that is Captain America's storyline isn't super... Dense. He actually has he has a huge role to play in Endgame, obviously, but he's not a major player. I would say completely in terms of the story arc of the of Avengers Infinity. He barely War. has any dialogue. Yeah, he just kind of shows up. Then he's at the battle at Wakanda, so he doesn't have a ton to do. Um, and then also, Nick Fury's not in Avengers Infinity War at all until the end credits. And why isn't Nick Fury in Avengers the last two films at all? Besides, well, he's that. at the at the funeral. Yeah, so that, yeah. yeah, besides that, the last two scenes of the last two movies, really, um, it's because him and Maria Hill, they're shown driving through a major city, which looks like DC or New York, and they're monitoring the energy signatures in Wakanda. And they mentioned that they'd done the same in the Black Order's earlier attack on Iron Man, Doctor Strange, Spider Man, and Bruce Banner in New York. So it's it's clear that they're kind of like what you said about Captain America and his little crew. They're like operating under the radar kind of carrying out their own little missions so yeah because shield is gone yeah shield's been dis it's been disassembled basically so why didn't the russos and the filmmakers screenwriters want nick fury in them anymore i'm assuming they just wanted a, a new direction of the films because nick fury was in you know he's the main character of the other two avengers movies i think that that they just wanted a different direction but I, I honestly don't know the answer, really. I would say that because for this movie, because they have so many characters, 
everyone who's in it has to have a pertinent reason for being there. Whereas Nick Fury is an overseer and he's the director and he's like moving the pieces, but they didn't have time to have a character like that. It would just be a waste of, of screen time. And so they had to have just, it's just straight action. And so I think everyone that's in this movie, they have vital roles to play and not a second is wasted. That's actually a really good point because if you think about it, Nick Fury is the person whose job is getting all these people together and in Infinity War, none of them are together at all. They don't ever get together until the very end of Endgame at the final battle. So in a way, Nick Fury's role of a person who assembles this team is kind of unnecessary to the plot of Infinity War, if you think about it, because all these characters are just in different locations doing their own thing. Yeah, because if you think about also his role in the Avengers movies that he's in compared to the solo movies that he's in for Captain Marvel and um, Winter Soldier, he has a lot to do in those movies action-wise and story-wise, where he's, he's not he's like actually involved in the plots, especially in Captain Marvel. And so, but in Avengers and Avengers Ultron, he's very much like behind behind the the, the stage, like kind of just like keeping an eye on everything. One eye. <laughs> Good save. <laughs> One of the most important parts of this film is when Tony, Doctor Strange, and, and the Guardians, and they're on Titan, and they're all waiting for Thanos to come and try to sabotage him and and catch him by surprise, where after Tony and, and Strange and Peter on the ship, after it leaves New York, they plan to attack Thanos head-on and catch him off guard, and that's what they think their best bet is. And then we have these new groups hanging out on, on Titan waiting for Thanos, and then uh, Star-Lord comes up with that plan, and then they actually have Thanos, and you think they're going to win. They can get the gauntlet off his hand. Tony's almost got it off. but Spidey almost has yeah, it off. Yeah, Spidey almost has it off, and Peter's like right in his face, and Peter becomes very emotional. He's upset, and he sabotages this this mission that, ironically, he came up with the plan, which he brags about, and then he, he ruins it because this is what Peter is. Peter's human. He makes mistakes. He fails in this movie just like everybody else, and his greatest failure is is his emotion getting the better of him because Gamora's, he just realizes that Thanos killed Gamora, the only person he's ever loved, the only person, if you go back to Guardians of the Galaxy 2, it's the only person that he's held hands with since his mother, since he refused his mother's hand. So his connection with Gamora now being destroyed by Thanos causes him to lash out because again, Peter Quill never really truly grew up emotionally. And so I don't have a problem with it because that's really how a human being probably would react. And he's really the only most, he's the most human of all these Avengers. And that battle is great. It's probably it's probably the best battle of the movie. Just seeing all of Thanos's abilities with these stones, and then every one of the Avengers and Guardians using their own special abilities. And like when they surprise Thanos, when Tony smashes that giant rock on on top of him. But then when like when Thanos like throws a moon at him, it's just it's absolutely nuts. I remember in the trailer when the trailer like ended with a shot of Thanos like with the gauntlet up and he's like screaming and he's like pulling the moon closer to the atmosphere and then it, the trailer ended and it was like, oh shit, that's crazy. And so it's a great battle. Um, and it, it, the la it reminds me of Dumbledore fighting Voldemort where you have all these crazy powers and amazing special effects and just, and just like the most magical, supernatural things happening um, thanks to his abilities. And it's a lot of fun and it's easily one of the highlights of the movie. But again... Everyone, I mean, I don't think anyone underestimates Thanos, but I think 
Thanos shows himself to be such an unbeatable force and the ultimate villain because even with all these amazing Avengers and heroes, they all go up against him together and he still manages to fight them off time and time again. Well, I think that's the concept in this movie, which I think is what makes it such a smart script and such smart storylines is the concept of fate versus free will where all these characters are making these important decisions and these choices that they think are defining their paths. But ironically, none of it matters because they lose to Thanos and Thanos and fate win. He says, I am inevitable and free will doesn't matter because Mr. Anderson. It, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't matter how hard they fight. It doesn't matter their decisions, their choices. Thanos comes and destroys everything as if they weren't even there. That's how easy it is for him. Obviously, they put up a little bit of a fight, but the fate of Thanos couldn't have been stopped. It it couldn't have been stopped by anybody. Even if I think even if they were all together, it couldn't have been stopped. So there's a there's a, a problem I have with this movie in particular. And so that fight on Titan is a, a reason why. So on the fight in Titan, he uses all these crazy powers to use with the stones, right? But then in Wakanda when he shows up, um, I know eventually he he wins and he gets the stone, but I just felt that this guy has a bevy of powers and can do so many things with this stone that he, he does have, the four that he does have. And it was kind of like questionable that when he shows up in Wakanda and uh, each hero takes a shot at him, basically, he doesn't kill anyone and he doesn't do any of his crazy powers on them or, or like turn them into anything with the reality stone or whatever. Hey, with all of them, I think he just uses the power stone to just like push them all away. And so that's a moment in the movie where I was like, okay, this is a little too marvelly for me where like he's just like, it's just equivalent of just him pushing them away. Whereas I, I mean, I thought it was like weird that a guy that has these amazing powers, which he showed on Titan and he showed um, when he turned um, Drax and um, Mantis into those shapes, like the cubes and the ribbon. I, I just, it, it kind of took me out of it that he didn't use these crazy powers when the Avengers were attacking him in Wakanda. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think they just wanted to show how powerful he was and just not even using the powers in a way. And that he could have handled them all no problem without the stones. But it also seems that, I don't know if, if I'm right on this, but it always seems that they're trying to prevent him from closing his fist because maybe he has to close his fist with the gauntlet to use the stones in a way. Well, no, he, yeah, but he does use it without his fist closed sometimes too. Well, no, he, yeah, he's able to close his fist on Wakanda. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I, I agree that at, at the same time, but it's it's also you know it's a movie. And I know. I'm just yeah, yeah. It is yeah. I, I know. It's, I'm just getting. A he little... could have went down there and just he could have changed reality. I mean, yeah, he could, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like he could have just turned everything to like snow. You know what I mean? Like w Wanda included. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Maybe he wanted to show how how futile all their powers were compared to him. I think that maybe that's his arrogance of him. He's like, I don't even need the stones to stop all of you. Mm -hmm. I yeah, think that's, that's a good point. I think that might be what it is. And I mean, one of the best shots in the whole movie is when um, Cap is is fighting him off, and and Thanos is just like got his one hand, and his his hand is so big that Cap is like using both his hands on uh, on his like thumb and pinky finger because he's just so gigantic. And it's a great shot where Thanos kind of like smirks that at Rogers for like showing a great amount of strength and, and will to fight. And he, I think he like, he gets, 
he gains Thanos' respect in that moment. You know what I mean? I love that shot of Cap just fighting that hand. Yeah, I agree. It's like how how Stark has his respect. He tells them that I, I hope they remember you because he he respects warriors and he he respects people who who fight and don't give up, even though he's a, a murder psychopath. Again, yeah, he has Tony principles. fought to the end. Yeah, and um, yeah, Thanos succeeds and people fade away when he snaps his fingers and obviously Thor. When he shows up at Wakanda, it's totally badass, and he has his axe. Yeah. And, you know, he's he's really the only other god on the battlefield. It's it's Thor and Thanos are really the only gods there. Because remember, the Avengers is just a bunch of humans who are pretending to be gods in a way. But you could say Scarlet Witch is is godlike. Pretty close, yeah. yeah. Not, I think not yet. I think yeah. I think in WandaVision, that's when she officially becomes a Scarlet Witch in my mind. Yeah. But um, but Thor's over arrogance as well. That's a major weakness for him because he wants to get that line into to satisfy and savor killing Thanos rather than the head, which has mm -hmm. caused him to snap his fingers. And it's really emotional. I think one You could the, say that's what really makes Thor snap in Endgame. Oh, obviously. Yeah. That's that's his failure. Is yeah. What, yeah, what caused him to become Fat Thor. That's, yeah. that's, that's obvious for sure. Yeah. But it's really emotional. When we actually watch everyone disappear and fade, even though we know they're all coming back eventually, it is still very dark. It's still very quiet with it, no music. So it it was surprising who they chose to kill. Yeah. Because like when T'Challa faded, I was like, whoa, you killing Black Panther? No way. Well, I think the reason they did that is because they had just wrapped filming on Black Panther. And then two weeks later, they went into filming Avengers. So I think scheduling wise and for the storyline, they probably needed some time for the cast and crew. Who knows? Maybe. No, I would say the reason for it is because one of the strengths of Endgame, I think, is that the crew, it's the old school Avengers. Oh, it's phase it's, one. Yeah, it's, yeah. The it's the main Avengers. And so I think that they did that on purpose because other than that, it's just Ant-Man and, and Rocket. Yeah. And then it's the main Avengers. So I think they purposely were like, in order for this phase to end, we need to end it with the with the crew that started it Yeah, all. you're probably right. So yeah. it's just the phase one. This is their curtain call. This is their final game because yeah. obviously I think they're playing like you, you think that or thought that that T'Challa would be the leader of the next phase, that you could say, in yeah. the cinematic universe, which obviously they're going to have to re-change re that yeah. all. But so yeah, so, yeah, Avengers, they killed all the new gen Avengers for that reason, so gotcha. that they, the original crew would be the ones that would lead would lead the victory in the, in the final yeah. one. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Some things that do make sense. <laughs> you want to talk about some superlatives? Yeah, let's do some superlatives, man. I let's, love them. Let's rock and roll. The first one we got is the MVP on three. One, two, three. Wait, together? Yeah. I think we have the same answer, I bet. I don't know. One, two, three. Thanos. <laughs> How's he the MVP? He fails, bro. Yeah, but he like he makes Stormbreaker and he pretty much saves the day in the Wakanda battle. No, he doesn't. It's all it's all futile. No, but like he like he like he messes that army up they're still fine but still it's futile no, i know i know hey let me say my Sorry. point Sorry. <laughs> i feel in terms of thor he has great moments he's the funniest part of the movie um he's got all the best lines and when he shows up with the axe uh, it's great and and the axe itself gives him so much ability to use his lightning and i think he just dominates that battle when he arrives and just that shot where he ha he does manage to basically nearly kill Thanos, which is further than, than anyone else got. I just think I just think entertainment wise, Thor is the most entertaining Avenger in this movie yeah. as a whole. From all those reasons, it's a great point. You're right. He is very hysterical. He does have a great arc, but I think that his failure and his arrogance getting in the way of actually killing Thanos at the end for me is what 
not make some MVP in my eyes. I think Thanos is the MVP because he's a winner. He's the, the boy he's, wins. He's, he's like Tom Brady in the Super Bowl. This guy yeah. got the Super Bowl. He got the Super Bowl MVP. They he both went to got, Disneyland. Yeah, Tom's got more rings though. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's got six. So yeah, yeah, you're right. Tom has one more. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah, he, yeah. Thanos wishes he he had the amount of jewels that Tom has. <laughs> They're pretty close. <laughs> okay, what's the best scene? I think the best scene is when Thanos sacrifices Gamora because it's what it's the most emotional scene in the entire film. It's what really connects us with Thanos emotionally and like sort of like you see the humanity that did exist in him somewhere that there was a part of him that actually loved something and he actually loved Gamora, even though she doesn't believe it. But I think that's the most powerful scene because of the empathy it brings and the stakes of it, of, of tossing the only person he loves off that cliff. It also shows you how he'll stop at nothing to achieve his destiny. And it almost, in a way, makes it inevitable. And also, it's when he wakes up in that, that sort of water, like the Soul Stone abyss, in a way, to yeah. get the Soul Stone. It's beautiful, beautiful cinematography. Even though it's CGI, it's just aesthetically, it's it's phenomenal. The coloring, the the the, the shots they use, and I think that that's the most powerful scene in the movie. It is cool to see Red Skull again. And then, what's cool about the Soul Stone water, like that that ocean of water? is originally they wrote it as it being a it's bl the blood of his victims is that's what the water is it was actually just red blood from all of his victims but i think disney was like hey that's a little too dark for us <laughs> this is the mouse house <laughs> <laughs> you just make it make me make it bubbles or something <laughs> i would say my my favorite scene is the fight on titan um, I, I think it's really great because Thanos has a great entrance and we get to see him in action and see what he can do, what he can do. And then uh, watching all of the Avengers like Doctor, you have Doctor Strange, Spider-Man, uh, Iron Man, I mean, Star-Lord, the Guardians, like it's great seeing these characters working together. And I, I think it was it's an outstanding um, cinematic and action heavy sequence that was super entertaining. Best shot. I, I would say like the Thanos shot I was just talking about in the Soul Stone Abyss, but also I love the shot when Tony, Doctor Strange, um, oh, what's his name? I have to get his name right. Doctor Strange, bud, what's his name? Wong. Wong. I love the shot where Tony, Doctor Strange, and Wong are leaving the temple, and it's a it's like a long take handheld shot following Tony. And we're like going around the corner of the building on the sidewalk, and then we're going and viewing the middle of the street. And it's it's very unusual to see in a Marvel movie a long take like this. It's very unusual to see a handheld take in a Marvel movie, let alone a long one. So I think that's one of the coolest shots in this film, and it effectively brings you really into the movie uh, to feel realism effectively early in the movie. That's a, a great shot to point out. Not just because of the long take, but the changed environments from an interior to an exterior. That doesn't happen often in movies, just in movies in general. And so, yeah, I think because we've talked about uh, Marvel movies are pre-visualized before filming. So the shots are lined up. They even have these amazing programs where they're able to program and do the mathematics for like, if we're going to use this mechanical crane, this automated robotic crane, um, it'll, they'll do the math so that they, they just set up the shot. And then the shot just does it. The crane does it itself with the with the algorithm that's already been programmed into the computer from the previs. 
and so that they, they just get on set and hit play on the on the computer and the camera does it on its own. Not that it's not great no, filmmaking. Yeah, no, yeah. It's just efficient. Yeah, it's that's the whole thing. Is Marvel is super efficient. They employ this this um super process. high quality efficiency. Yeah, because yeah, they're trying to get the most bang for their buck. But so like this is a a handheld shot in these movies. It's very rare, so I think that's a great choice. My favorite shot uh, is when Wanda and Vision are cornered by that pair of villains. The train goes by, and then every, and then uh, the bad guys they see like a a figure through the windows of the train, and then um, when the train passes, she throws her spear across the the train station, and then a, a shadowy figure catches it, and then and then Captain America just walks forward into the light and it's like oh man it's best reveal best reveal for sure the whole theater started screaming when that shot happened yeah i I think that's the best shot of the movie all right best actor i'm gonna give it to i think zoe zaldana obviously josh brolin is phenomenal as thanos and you can only imagine what it was like for him being on set. Same, we've talked about this with with Andy Serkis doing Gollum. With you know, you have the camera strapped to you, but Brolin at times also had these like giant styrofoam body parts and uh, helmets to just kind of give the actors a a relation to the size of what Thanos is actually like and the spacing. So he's probably in all sorts of weird getups. But I think Zoe Zaldana is phenomenal in this movie. We finally get to see some some great acting um, opportunities for her as Gamora. Because, you know, I think the scene where she's talking to Thanos and she's going through so many emotions about with Thanos about to throw off the cliff and saying that she's she's like, this is where the universe has failed you or you failed because you love nothing. And then she's slowly realizing that Thanos actually does love her. And also the scenes, the two scenes where uh, Gamora asks Peter to kill her if Thanos ever captures her. That's a really emotional scene as well. And then also when Thanos captures Gamora and she's begging Peter to kill her, I think she gives in those three scenes specifically, she's phenomenal. Yeah, she's got she does have a lot to do in this movie. You're right. She's a major part. Second most uh viewed yeah. character on screen. I give it to Josh Brolin because it just because it was a really difficult task to bring this villain to life, I think, because that there was so much build up for him. And I think he brings so much nuance and empathy and relatability and understanding to the character. Where walking into this movie, I pictured Thanos as like this guy who just wants to kill everyone because he's a psycho. But then with Brolin's interpretation of the character, you really understood what he was doing, even if you don't agree with it. And he felt like a really fleshed out character. And the performance is great. And he actually, Josh Brolin, based his performance off of Marlon Brando's performance in Apocalypse Now as Colonel Walker Kurtz. And so Marlon Brando, the bald-headed Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now, inspired um, the way that Josh Brolin interpreted Thanos. That makes a lot of sense. They're pretty similar when you think about it. Yeah. They both have very extreme ideologies. All right. Best line. You should have gone for the head. That's probably the best line for me. There's so many there's so many good lines though. I picked the same one. <laughs> it's so good. I love so many of them. I, although I would say that Thanos line with little Gamora when he's he has the he's balancing the knife and he says uh, he's talk he's just saying I can't remember exactly but he says too much to one side and too much to the other. 
but when it's ba- when it's balanced and it's just right perfectly balanced perfectly is balanced, all things should be yeah it's all things should be yeah i think that's a good line too because it's it shows the, the motivation of his character underrated aspect of the movie i think the script it's easily the best script of all the mcu films and every character arc is phenomenal very well fleshed out and every joke lands in this movie all the one-liners work and it's hysterical i would agree with you i think it's the the writing of this movie because it's a crazy task to to make an ensemble like this work and also things get rolling not just because for no reason like things get rolling for specific reasons like there's inciting incidents that cause the conflict to happen and i think that everything flows naturally it doesn't feel over bloated it doesn't feel rushed um there isn't a moment wasted i think that uh, the mcu is just firing on all cylinders and i think the screenwriters i mean they did something that seemed impossible yeah and you have it's a superhero script but you have in the the themes of death sacrifice family uh fate versus free will um genocide it's it's intense there's so many things that they cover and knock it out of the park obviously and i remember when the first avengers came out people were like oh it's an impossible task to make a movie with these these few handful of characters and people were like oh josh josh we did the impossible but it's like now there are 18 lead characters and it's like at least yeah it's like 30 yeah it's, it's like how do you do that and so i think that they did something that definitely seemed impossible for sure any faults or cons that we haven't already talked about i would probably just say i think the biggest con for me again is the stakes aren't completely real at the end when everyone disappears because we know they're all coming back obviously though loki's death is real and that's emotional yeah i have a couple cons I just thought I mean, it's super fun, and I mean, how else? I, they, they can't waste any time. But I just thought the odds of Thor landing on the Guardians ship, like within five seconds of them entering that area, just a little too improbable. Uh, improbable. And then um, also the opening sequence when the Asgardian ship is destroyed, um, they didn't show what happened with the other Asgardians um, because they weren't killed because valkyrie shows up and then also um taiko atiti's character what's his name oh uh the the rock the guy. rock guy he's hanging out with thor with fat thor and so, yeah they don't show everyone so they, on the ship yeah so they, they they may seem like all of the asgardians were blown up in the ship and none survived because we only see what happens to thor and so i was a little confused at endgame when the rock guy is there Hanging out with Thor. I mean, it's funny, but I was like, wait, did he not die on the ship? And then also when Valkyrie shows up at Endgame. Yeah, you're right. I never thought about so that. So I was like, oh, wait, whatever happened to Valkyrie? Because if she survived, where is she for the rest of the movie? Yeah. And then how did, the rock, how did the rock guy get with Thor? And it's like, like, because yeah. Valkyrie's in, where, where are they? Norway? The new yeah, Asgard? Yeah. yeah. So how? Where, what's their journey from the ship exploding to Norway? I mean, they don't have to show it, but I was just like, wait, I, I didn't know they survived the ship explosion. That's a great point. I honestly never thought about that. I just accepted it willingly like everybody else. <laughs> it's, hey, I'm I'm sure plenty of people will question it. Yeah, great point. Thanks. Let's do some trivia. Yeah, I love trivia. This is a, a good one. Um, James Gunn revealed that Groot's final words in Avengers Infinity War, right before he's about to disappear in Rocket Raccoon's arms, uh, when he says, I am Groot, he's saying, Dad, as he's reaching for Rocket and fading away, and now I'm crying. Aw. Poor Groot. Tom Holland was not allowed to read the script for this movie since he accidentally revealed too many secrets for Spider-Man Homecoming. 
Mark Ruffalo also revealed that he was given a fake script by Marvel due to his habit of accidentally spoiling Marvel past movies, past Marvel movies. He also jokingly claimed that the the fake script was better than the real one. The the Wakandan war cry Yabambe, Yabambe, which um T'Challa leads his his people in, is actually Josa, which means uh, is translate is is a Josa word, which means hold strong. So they're pretty much saying like hold strong, like hold the line, like get ready. Basically, is what that means. So in this film, Hulk crashes into Doctor Strange's um, Sanctum Sanctorum um, when he reveal and then he reveals that Thanos is coming. But in the comic books, the Silver Surfer is the one who crashes into Doctor Strange's temple and warns of the threat of Thanos. But at the time, Marvel didn't own the rights to Silver Surfer, so they never implemented the Silver Surfer into any of the Marvel movies. Robert Downey Jr. requested that the furniture from his house in Los Angeles had to be shipped to the filming location in Atlanta. And the movie studio obviously complied because whatever Downey wants, Downey gets. (laughs) He also negotiated a... um, separate deal than the mcu his mcu co-stars he makes a ton of money compared to everybody else and he signed on as tony stark in all the subsequent avengers films but he also his appearances in in civil war and spider-man homecoming weren't in part of that deal so he negotiated those you know as robert Downey jr not as iron man you can say and i think he got like five million dollars for like a week's work on spider-man homecoming and i don't even know how much he got for civil war it's probably something silly he probably got 50 million for probably, civil war probably something silly yeah. he's, he's made hundreds of millions of dollars from these movies which is yeah, crazy. hundreds of millions oh so you know you know that scene when peter parker dies from the dust and it's it's like for him it, it, it takes a while. Like he yeah. has that moment with Tony Stark, whereas everyone else just pretty much everyone else just dissolves immediately. But the reason for that is that um, his spidey sense, uh, super healing. Yeah, he, the spidey sense gave made him aware of what was happening, and also he has accelerated healing, so that prevented him from disintegrating immediately. So anyone who's confused of how Peter and Tony were able to talk for that long, it's because of uh, Peter's powers. Thanks for tuning into this episode on Avengers Infinity War. We really hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to go to RaidersOfUsPodcast.com, become a patron, check out all of our merch, our movie posters, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, subscribe on YouTube, and thank you so much for tuning in.